The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy sitting in again this week for Hugh Linehan. There's two parts to today's special podcast. In the second part, I'll get an update from our Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch and our London editor Dennis Staunton about the US presidential election and Brexit respectively. But first I want to talk about what's been a dramatic week in the government's management of COVID-19 and a dramatic week for the country. And for that, I'm joined by our reporter, Jack Horgan-Jones. Hi, Jack. Hey, Pat. Jack, um, I have uh, recently completed uh, uh, another thundering column for uh, tomorrow's newspaper. And I, I, the thought came to me while writing it that really, this has probably been the worst week for the government in its management of the pandemic, maybe since the new government took over. Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. Um, and what I think is is interesting as well is that it comes after a couple, at least, uh, at least a couple of, of kind of what might even be put down in the win column for the government. So, you know, they, they had uh, the return to schools, which went more or less according to plan. And they had uh, a budget which uh, was was widely welcomed, largely because there was there was nothing in there to annoy anyone. Um, but the emerging issues from the start of October around the advice that was coming uh, into the Department of Health from the National Public Health Emergency Team and how serious that was, and the recommendations that we go to level five um, have gathered pace and. Uh, undermined, I think, ultimately, the, the government's management of that situation has has undermined uh, public confidence in its capacity to manage the pandemic. And the fact that people are now forming a fairly well-grounded view that we're heading back into level five, not just because of the virulence of the, uh, the, the, the coronavirus, but also because the government has fluffed its lines in terms of how it used the summer to, uh, to, to, to build a test and trace system, among other bullocks that might be reasonably uh, expected to slow the advance of the virus, um, is, is a political problem for the government now because confidence would seem to be ebbing away from it and, and from its, its capacity to, to effectively manage the response to the virus. I mean, ultimately, no matter how you look at it, the government rejected Neffed's advice three weeks ago, said it really didn't buy the need to go into level five. This week was a massive U-turn in that position based on numbers that hadn't dramatically deteriorated, uh, I think. Now, Neffed warned that there was a significant deterioration, but in terms of daily cases, hospital admissions, ICU admissions, the numbers weren't displaying the sort of runaway train quality that we might have seen back in uh, back in April. 
I I wouldn't quite agree. I, I think there there was a sense that um you were seeing things like the the five, seven and fourteen day incidence rate per one hundred thousand of population, uh, which is a key metric when you're looking at how the, the virus spreads. You you were seeing those doubling uh in a in a period of days, in a period of, of ten to fourteen days, and there was there was no suggestion that we were able to get that under control in any meaningful sense. Um, so you were in a situation where there was what they term in the Neffet letters widespread community transmission. Now that's that's a kind of byword for the virus being out of control. That means that people are picking it up left, right and centre. They don't know where they're getting it and they're not, and, and to use one of the, the kind of the, the, the phrases of the pandemic, they're not interrupting the chains of transmission. So basically all the all the mechanisms that were set up to try and do that, to slow the march, and which seemed to a greater or lesser extent to be effective in some theatres during the summer, weren't having an impact, certainly in Dublin, first of all, or not having as much of an impact in Dublin, first of all, and then very rapidly around the country. Um, and, and, and also what I think is interesting is that the Neffet advice from the 4th of October, the first letter when they advised going into a level five lockdown, didn't change and was very clear that there was no point in going with this graduated response. There was no point in going level three, level four and then level five because you were going to end up in level five anyway. And the government threw that advice out once, twice, and then only on the third time accepted that fundamentally it did seem to be correct. The models were being borne out in reality and the models were only were only pointing in one direction, which was a direction that was going to put serious pressure on the hospital system. And also, as we've seen in the last few days, it was going to get to the point, in fact, arguably is getting to the point where there is so much virus out there circulating in the community that you cannot protect vulnerable populations. You cannot protect people who live in settings like a nursing home or an acute hospital, sorry, someone being treated in an acute hospital, because there are just too many entry points. When there's a tipping point, when there's so many uh, people infected with this, that it starts flowing in and really affecting communities who have quite high mortality rates. And that's why I think, first of all, Neffet, again, in the letters of the 4th, the 8th and the 15th, said, look, this is there, thereabouts in terms of getting it to nursing homes. And secondly, why it is so concerning that we see significant outbreaks and significant numbers of people being infected in nursing homes in recent days towards the latter end of this week. Does that mean that the real failures took place earlier? Failures in terms of the earlier restrictions, because one of the criticisms that I heard across government, both immediately before and since this uh, decision was taken to go into a second lockdown, was that they hadn't given sufficient chance for the earlier restrictions that were introduced over recent weeks to actually take effect and to actually work. And I gather this was one of the things that was argued at that crucial Saturday meeting in government buildings last week, that the uh, while it had been diagnosed the previous week, that one of the main areas of transmission was in the home and there had been a ban on visitors to the home instituted just days before that Saturday meeting that they hadn't given a chance for these 
meaningful level three and level four restrictions uh, uh, to to work. Do you buy that argument? I do, I do. And I, I, I think that you're right to identify that first change that came through in the middle of the month um, around the, the household visitors ban as something that all parties and certainly cabinet ministers I was talking to would have liked to see work its way through the system because, and, and this is extremely anecdotal, but I do think that it had an impact on the ground. I mean, even amongst my own peer group and, and, and wider extended family, people were reacting to that news and that policy change in a way that they weren't uh, to earlier ones. I think, I think that did cut through. But that being said, you're faced with a situation whereby you've, in, you've instituted this. It's going to be a couple of weeks, perhaps even a little bit longer before you can reasonably say whether that's having uh, an impact or not. You're coming from a situation where you've you've gone to level three in parts of the country, but you're not seeing a, a meaningful enough effect to say it's actually making a difference. And then you have to sit back and balance and, and say, right, do we stick with our graded approach or do we take the, the Dr. Mike Ryan from the WHO angle, which is that in a situation where a virus is out of control or has the upper hand, you're better off doing something and doing something quickly rather than waiting for the perfect solution to arise. Because if you wait for that perfect solution, the virus is always moving and will and will will consolidate the upper hand it has on you. And I think ultimately, when they sat down around the cabinet table, whenever it was, I think on, on Monday evening, I think that was one of the the organizing principles that they followed. They they said, look, we cannot say with confidence that sitting back and waiting for level three plus plus or whatever we've just instituted is going to have a positive result in terms of protecting the health of the population. What is our role here um, as government? It is primarily to protect the state and protect the health of the population. And we can say with a larger degree of confidence that if we go ahead with level five, we will uh, achieve that outcome. Unfortunately, they, they, they've, they've gone down that road in the full knowledge that they're kind of immolating the economy at the same time. And that's the trade-off that they've arrived at. And I think there's a large degree of unhappiness, both within government and outside of government and in society at large, that we seem to have arrived at this strange binary where it's either, you know, public health or the health of populations or the health of vulnerable cohorts within the population or the economy, you know, and, and, and I don't think that's a sustainable position going but forward. Isn't this, not a strategy. isn't this the real failure of government? And to my mind, the most politically damaging failure of government is its failure over recent months to prepare for a second wave that leads you to a situation where you have to choose then between public health and the economy, um, uh, public health on the one hand, the economy uh, on the other, which is a choice really that the government cannot continue to make cannot keep putting itself in the position where it has to sacrifice the economy to maintain public health it can't and 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 i mean it it can for a whole variety of reasons but like just to take the the cost of of doing so i mean we know that the budget is predicated on a whole load of sensible uh negative assumptions around there being no brexit trade deal and there being no effective uh, vaccine for the next year or so and and that's good it's good to be kind of pessimistic when you're drawing up a budget in times like these but it's also predicated on the economy not being in lockdown for large chunks of next year uh, it's predicated on on there not being level five every few weeks as we struggle to get this thing back under control um, and currently at the moment 
I don't really see how we can confidently predict looking into 2021 that at least several times next year we won't have to go into a, a lockdown, presuming that there's no effective vaccine, that we won't have to go into a lockdown for an indeterminate period of weeks. And that's that's not that's not a way to run an economy. And it's a way that I think if we if we ran the economy, we would see significantly worse outturns than the central scenarios that underpin all the budget, all the budgetary arithmetic, and that would be be deeply uh, problematic. So I think that 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 you're right that this is a huge problem as we face not into Christmas so much. Christmas can be can be a bit of a distraction because it it occupies such a a big place in the collective consciousness. But as we look into 2021, I think that's that's a massive problem, and and people will rightly be saying to the state, to the HSC, to the Minister for Health, what were you doing? during June, July and August, when you were pointing to the apparent fact that you were constructing a test and trace system that might be able to at least slow down the spread of this virus. Because it seems, as we saw from our colleague Simon Carswell's article earlier on this week, that at least temporarily uh, last weekend, the system was overwhelmed and people will be looking as to why that was. And I think there is a causative link now um, in voters' heads between their experience of the pandemic potentially being a very negative one going forward and the government's management of the pandemic over the last few months. And that's problematic. That, I think, is where the real political damage is being done. And I think this week was an important week um, in that regard. Finally, Jack, if the if the government missed its opportunity to, through track and trace, and presumably some level of observed ongoing restrictions, albeit considerably lower than what we're at at the moment, if the government missed its chance to institute that environment over the summer uh, in that, that, that lull period, can it regain the initiative and do so over the coming weeks? Can it use this lockdown to prepare to avoid the next one? I'm not sure that there's any massive reason for optimism on that front. Uh, why why should it be the case that they will be able to do something better in six weeks uh, and, and they had five odd months to do it really from kind of mid-May up until now? Uh, they will have spent 450 million euros this year alone on constructing a test and trace system. Um, the full year cost of that is 700 million euros. And it was clear from about early August onwards that it was slipping. The, 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 the length of time it took to complete contact tracing was slipping. Um, and from about early September onwards, that slipped past the three-day point at which experts say you really have to be, you have to be there or under in order to, to effectively prevent transmission of the virus. So I'm, I'm not sure that there's any reason for optimism on that front. Now, you can look at it two ways. You can say, look, this, this countries around Europe are struggling with this and, and we are not unique in that. And also we've had to deal with the fact that, you know, perhaps at a population level, our behaviours could have been better. But I don't think those arguments will cut much, will, will, will really um, do the trick when it comes to voters' perceptions of government. I mean, in the first instance, because people are very unlikely to look beyond Ireland. And in the second instance, when was the last time that voters were given a choice between blaming themselves and blaming the government and, and chose to blame themselves? You know, this this is a problem for government. This is the we all partied. Uh... 
Yes, indeed. Yeah, we <laughs> we may have all yeah. partied, but I don't think that, that that line would go down particularly well. Now, it didn't go down well particularly well for Brian Lennon back in the day. And they're they're facing a, a similar situation whereby, you know, the complexity and the reality of the situation does go beyond what the government could or should have done. But what the government could or should have done is a massive part of it. And it is the most visible part of it. And it is the most politically febrile part of it going forward. Well, on that uplifting and optimistic note to start the weekend, uh, we leave it there, Jack. Thanks for joining us today. And we're going to move on to discuss international stories now. And I'm going to talk to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, and to our London editor, Dennis Staunton. But first, I want to tell you about an online event that's taking place next Thursday at 7pm. Hugh will be talking to uh, self-same Washington correspondent Ms Lynch and to the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd about the US presidential election which will take place the following Tuesday. Tickets are on sale now with a special rate for Irish Times subscribers and if you want to find out more follow the link in the description of this episode or check out Hugh's Twitter handle which is at H And so we're joined now by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Hello, Suzanne. Good morning, Pat. And from Westminster, from the heart of London, by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Pat. Suzanne, you didn't have to stay up late to watch the debate last night like the rest of us, but I presume you watched it anyway. I did, yes. It was unmissable TV, Pat. Um, This was the second and final debate between the two presidential candidates here Obviously, a debate had supposed to happen last week, but Donald Trump objected to the virtual format for a debate that was introduced by the commission as a uh, as a compromise after Trump tested positive for COVID. So instead, uh, he, he threw up that opportunity and he was back on the debate stage last night in Nashville. Now, there was a lot of expectations about what kind of what version of Donald Trump would show up uh, on the evening? And the last, the first debate was, of course, um, extremely rancorous. It descended into name calling, mudslinging. Um, this was very different. It was more of a traditional presidential debate. Uh, we had more room for policy discussions on things like COVID, uh, on foreign policy, on immigration. Um, but and and Donald Trump definitely adopted a more calm demeanor. In saying that, you know, behind that cloak of professionalism, if you like, or civility, um, it was still the same old Donald Trump. I mean, he he took on Joe Biden. He spouted mistruths, uh, for example. He um, called Joe Biden a criminal, saying he got millions from China and Ukraine, nothing to back that up. Um, he said that Joe Biden opposed fracking. Not true, Joe Biden said. Um, so although although it was different in style, I think in substance, it, it was quite similar to the previous debates. Much of the commentary in advance suggested that with the polls the way they are and a clear lead for Biden and also an early voting, which we might uh, come to talk about in a few minutes, uh, that Trump needed a clear victory uh, in, in the debate. And as long as Biden was still standing at the end of it, then you know, that was good enough for him. So what did you think of the outcome? I mean, did you see a clear winner on the night? And uh, and in the context of those expectations beforehand, who do you think will be happier coming out of it? Yeah, I think there was not a, a really clear winner, but I suppose Biden, one would have to say, emerged, you know, victorious in the sense that um, 
He was fine. He was very competent. Um, he delivered some of the themes he wanted to highlight during the night. And he didn't uh, make any major mistake, which is, you know, his main his main task for the next 11 days. Now, he did actually, though, towards the end, there's kind of an interesting moment where he uh, there was a discussion about climate change and he seemed to admit that he was going to transition away from oil. And immediately you had two uh, Democratic candidates in congressional races around the country who took to Twitter to basically distance himself from Joe Biden. So there was kind of dangerous territory for Biden. You know, he he clarified his comments afterwards, but you could see how badly this could have gone if he'd said something, you know, similar similar about a, another foreign policy issue or something. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, Donald Trump, the, the problem for Donald Trump is that um, he is still wildly popular among his base. Um, you know, they still they're 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 going to turn out for him, it looks like. But of course, you know, that's probably not enough for him to win this election. He needs to win over uh, the undecided people who might be on the fence who are not too excited or enamored by Joe Biden. In saying that, I think the big distinction this year is that there are fewer undecided voters in this election. And that has completely changed the dynamic. One of the many reasons uh, Donald Trump won the last time was that there was a sizable minority of undecided voters who in the last 10 days of the campaign, most of those actually went for Donald Trump. This time, there's, there's a, a recent poll out by um, NPR um, Maris poll that showed 5% of voters, maybe at a push, are undecided. So, the, so that pool is smaller. So that is a negative for, for Donald Trump. Um, so look, I mean, it, it's a cliche, but it's true. How many minds were changed last night? I don't know. I mean, this election is an election where most people are already... Um, very strong in their views about who they're going to support. Uh, so I think each each set of supporters heard what they wanted to hear from their people last night. Dennis, you're an old Washington hand is one of the many strings to your bow. Um, what, what, what did you make of it? I think, uh, yeah, it was certainly uh, a more uh, competent performance by Donald Trump than the other kind of crazy debate when he was constantly interrupting. And I think it was probably, he was less off-putting than he was in that previous debate. But as Suzanne says, I mean, if you think about what Donald Trump had to do, and again, if you look back to 2016, what happened in the last few days of that campaign was that all, a lot of these undecided voters went for Trump rather than for Hillary Clinton, but also that a lot of Republicans who had uh, who didn't like Donald Trump, who didn't like uh, the idea of him being president, they nonetheless, at the last minute, they went home. And that was partly because he ran a more normal campaign in the last two weeks, where he was focusing on the economy. But he was also, of course, focusing on the people's issues, whereas the new Donald Trump or the 2020 Donald Trump focuses on himself as a victim a lot of the time. So uh, so even in last night's debate, he found it very hard not to keep going back to the idea that he had been so badly treated and more badly treated than any president. He is, on the other hand, quicker on his feet than Joe Biden. And although Joe Biden, uh, you know, is better than uh, than his worst moments and he hasn't actually turned out to be a complete disaster in the debates, he's really not a star debater. And in that sense, Trump had a few moments. I thought one potentially useful thing, but again, it's probably too late, was where he was reminding uh, black voters of uh, Joe Biden's record in the Senate in the 80s and in the 90s of promoting crime legislation, which was which hit uh, particularly young black men especially badly. And so this idea that you somehow drive a wedge between uh, Biden and this uh, very important part of his vote and perhaps depressed turnout. Once again, though, the problem there is so many Democrats have already voted that uh, that margin, as Suzanne was saying, that, you know, that 
that he was able to fish in a rather larger pool last time. And just it, it feels as if it's probably a bit too late. Yeah, I want to talk about that um, briefly, if I can, Suzanne. The, the level of early voting uh, seems to be a, a multiple of what one would normally expect uh, at this stage. And I, I saw some indications uh, reported in Washington today that the Democrats were being particularly successful uh, in, in early voting, in getting out newly registered voters and infrequent voters, which would tend to suggest if it continues and is replicated for the rest of the campaign, that there is a sort of possibility of not just a a Biden win, but a a really big Biden win. Well, I mean, yeah, the early voting numbers, firstly, you know, 47 million Americans have already voted. So that's more than a third of the total vote in 2016. So the huge number. Now, the implications for, of this are, you know, are difficult to assess. I, traditionally, Democratic voters tend to vote earlier or to use postal voting. But of course, the Trump campaign, logically, which is a fair enough point, says, you know, that might not eat into the final vote. Our people are just going to go out on the day and vote. And we're confident about that. And there actually has been some strong figures for Republicans, particularly in the really crucial state of Florida, where their registration of registered Republican voters has gone up since 2016. And they keep pointing to that. And it's something to watch, I think, particularly um, in Florida. And I think it's no uh, coincidence that this weekend we're seeing Trump on uh, Friday is back in Florida. Barack Obama is is campaigning in Miami on Saturday. Because I think the issue, say, for example, Miami, I, I was there last week myself, even those voters who were, weren't, weren't strong Republicans and who, who, who didn't like Trump, you know, you got the sense are they really going to turn out or not? So this is going to be one of the themes I think Barack Obama is going to really push in the next 10 10 days or so. The issue is as well, and and getting back to the the earlier theme, because, you know, there are so few undecided voters and in certain key states, it's going to be extremely close, like very, very close. North Carolina and Florida suggest, you know, neck and neck kind of uh, uh, polling at this stage. So that means turnout really matters. Um, And, you know, it, it, it really does. So, Democrats, I think, getting back to that theme that there's no point in trying to win over new voters, are going to try and get their own base out um, as much as possible. I think that's going to be, or that should be the focus uh, in the next few days. Now, the other issue about early voting, and this is kind of an alarm bell ringing at this stage, is that what is most likely going to happen on election night is that um, Donald Trump may well do better among people who have voted on the day. But for, um, say, in a state like Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania can only start you know, counting its vote on Election Day and actually can accept votes now um, after Election Day as long as it's been posted by November the 3rd. So we're very likely going to have a scenario, say, for example, in Pennsylvania, where the counting of those votes are going to go on for some quite some time. And as those votes are counted, the numbers are probably going to go up for, for uh, Joe Biden. But the danger, of course, is that, John, uh, that Donald Trump is going to seize on this and say, look, I'm winning on the first night. Uh, and then actually, as it, as it progresses, you know, the, the, the picture changes. And then will we have Donald Trump kind of disputing um, the security of this election process? So, you know, that's something to keep in mind with postal voting. But the numbers are huge. And I think it's a kind of a positive story in that earlier in the year, in the spring, we saw really chaotic scenes in Milwaukee, in parts of New York. Because of the pandemic, we had people queuing for hours, problems with postal voting. 
Um, in Milwaukee, for example, there were out of 183 postal booths, um, voting booths, only five are open. I spoke to the mayor of Milwaukee a few weeks ago for peace, and he's like, we, we've now sorted that problem. So there's a sense that a lot of the um, the election officials here, which and it's very much run by state by state, that they are a bit more organized now, that we might not see the chaos that many people had been fearing uh, earlier in the year. So I suppose that's a positive story in terms of democratic participation um, and voter access in this election. And that vista of uncertainty on election night and in the days afterwards has been well rehearsed uh, at, at this stage in terms of possibilities for things going uh, for things going wrong. But uh, let's skip over that. But but briefly, do you think then that on election night, which you know I suppose everybody's looking forward to, and even despite the huge numbers of of early voting, there's those iconic moments on election night that people look forward to. But do you think that they won't now occur? That the like that the moment when the networks declare for Biden or declare for Trump. Do you, do you think that will happen now on election night? I think it's very likely that it won't happen, but it depends on what happens, I think, in Florida. So some of the states are going to declare early. So Florida, and we remember what happened 20 years ago with the Bush versus Gore race. Um, actually, in Florida, they're pretty organised in terms of postal voting. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, and they can also start pre-sorting votes before they actually start counting them. We expect an early enough vote for Florida. And Florida, if Donald Trump loses Florida, it's game over really for Trump. And then we will we will have a very good indication of how the election goes. Also, Arizona, a very important state. That Now, it's it's three hours behind the East Coast, but that should declare early. But then, um, you know, on the other side of things, some of the uh, Midwestern Rust Belt states, the, the three key states, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and they are likely to be later reporting. So, you know, it really depends if 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 Trump wins Florida, it's going to be a lot more complex because then we're going to have to start waiting and see how does Biden do in Pennsylvania, um, in Wisconsin, etc. But as I say, if Trump loses Florida, I think that's going to give us a good indication of how. But Trump needs all of those, doesn't he? Yeah. He's he's he yeah. has won them, but he needs to he needs to retain them, and he's been challenged in all of them. That's the yeah, and that's the issue. Trump if he loses on the, any one of them, he's goose. Yeah. Trump, he, he, Trump is on the defensive in a lot of the states he won the last time. So that's his problem. Um, so he's trying to protect his majority there. So we have seen him and the campaign invest time and money in states like Texas, uh, in states like Georgia, in states like Arizona. That, 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 that's less um, of an issue because that's always been a little bit more swingy. But, you know, if, if the Republicans are worried now about losing Georgia and Texas, like that, that's a problem for them. Um, so I think the story of this election may well be, it may not, but it may be that the, the, the shift in the Democratic vote, if Democrats flip a state like Arizona and even Texas, which obviously would be a huge earthquake, you know, is this the time the Democrat support is now in the Sunbelt states that effectively it's kind of lost a lot of those old union working class white votes in the Michigans and the Pennsylvania. And actually, it should be looking at the demographic changes um, that are happening in states like, like Arizona and Texas. So that's going to be one of the big picture things to look at, I think, on election night. Well, 
I don't know about you, Dennis, but I am insanely jealous of Suzanne's job uh, at, at the moment. <laughs> so, part of it, but, although uh, I think the exhaustion factor, which is probably starting you to can, in you can around this stage, I think, she, don't she, envy she, or that or recall that with too much pleasure. She can sleep after November the 3rd or possibly not, Maybe as, not. We've just, <laughs> as we've just discussed. But look, let us look at London um, for uh, a, a few minutes, Dennis, if uh, if you don't mind, some mood music earlier this week that the Brexit breakdown may not have been a breakdown at all and the two sides are still talking, but to the extent that they're discussing substantive things remains to be seen and the log jams in the negotiations appear still to be in place. And all this in a week when the picture is ever darkening for Boris Johnson on COVID. Brexit first, uh, what's your read on the state of play? Well, they've certainly got back into serious negotiations. And in fact, uh, the negotiations that restarted this week are uh, on a completely different level in terms of the intensity uh, of uh, of the nature of them than they were before this breakdown. If you go, if we go back a week, uh, the, the, the you know this kind of standoff happened after the European Council issued conclusions where they said uh, that talks should continue, but they didn't say that they should continue intensively, which is a word that uh, the, the British government wanted to hear. And they also said that it was up to Britain to make some compromises. So this was seized on in London, and Boris Johnson said the Europeans have ended these trade talks because they're quite clearly not serious. And so a meeting which had never actually been scheduled for the Monday in London was cancelled. So that became a huge story in London, how uh, Michel Barnier was about to get onto the Eurostar and that David Frost had told him not to get on. Whereas, in fact, what had actually happened was that Michel Barnier had written Frost a letter on the Friday morning, knowing that all this stuff was, was blowing up, saying, I could come over to London myself and we could talk in person on Monday. And so they, uh, then Frost called him in the afternoon and said, uh, and again, a scheduled call on Friday afternoon and said, well, there's not really much point in you coming over here, given that we've announced that you've broken off the talks. And so, but on, on the other hand, they spoke every day at the beginning of this week by phone. And finally, uh, Michel Barnier went into the European Parliament and he said, uh, you know, we are going to start talking to the British. Everybody has to uh, compromise on both sides. And he very crucially said that they had agreed to speak on the basis of shared legal texts. One of the big British complaints has been that the Europeans have always refused to talk uh, about legal texts. And so uh, the British are drawing up their legal text, the Europeans are drawing up theirs. But normally at this stage, when you're doing an agreement, you would have what's called a consolidated legal text, where you, uh, you know, the bits that are agreed go in green, the bits that are kind of agreed, but not entirely would be yellow, and then the rest of it would be white. And then the white bits uh, get smaller and smaller until there's only the really the most difficult things left. The Europeans resisted doing that because they felt that not doing it gave them a bit more leverage. And so what this uh, standoff, much of which was kind of operatic, it nonetheless has actually achieved from the British point of view an agreement from the Europeans to uh, enter these intensive talks. And so what you're going to have is a joint secretariat between the British and the Europeans overseeing this drafting of, uh, of a joint text. And so the, uh, you know, Barnier, when he uh, met the leaders of the uh, political groups in the European Parliament, uh, 
uh, this week. He then, they had a private meeting where he said, look, um, you know, uh, I said that these talks should end at the end of October, but in fact, I'm going to need really two or three weeks. And so they said, yeah, you can actually go up to November the 15th. And that would still give uh, time to get all their ratification stuff done. I mean, it does sound like procedurally that we are on the pathway to an agreement, but there's still quite a part on some very fundamental issues. Yeah. So the two big issues are uh, the level playing field uh, guarantees a fair competition on things like uh, employment and environmental rules, but mainly about what the Europeans call state aid, which is state subsidies to businesses. And that's one issue. And the other issue is fisheries. And the British are in the stronger position on fisheries because uh, it's their fishing waters. And the European initial position had been that nothing should change, that even though Britain was leaving the European Union, that European fishermen had been fishing in these waters since the 17th century or the 14th century or the 12th century or whatever, and there's no reason why they should stop now. And they should just have more or less the same arrangements as before, which was patently unreasonable. But now the Europeans have accepted that things are going to have to change, but they still have to negotiate something on this. Now, this is difficult, although it's economically not very important. I mean, there's a figure which people like to use in London a lot, which is that the annual turnover of the fishing industry is about the same as the turnover of Harrods department store. And although Harrods is kind of a busy shop occasionally, it's not really, so, you know, a kind of a, um, you know, uh, such an important part of the British economy. But the, um, uh, but yeah, so, so anyway, there's fisheries and fisheries is, uh, it's an important uh, element for particular constituencies. So the fishermen first themselves, both in Britain and in the, the European coastal states, are quite a vociferous lobby. But also the particular places in Britain where fisheries are important include, for example, Scotland. And so it's politically very dangerous for uh, Boris Johnson to compromise too much on fisheries. The Europeans are more concerned about the issue of state aid and subsidies because basically, uh, and again at the European Council last week, a number of the, during their private discussion of this, I understand that a number of the leaders said it would be better not to have a deal than to allow Britain to have access to the European single market on unfair terms. And so that they, I think, will be quite tough in terms of the safeguards they want. And the safeguards that they want has now come down to a kind of an architecture where, first of all, the two sides would agree there would be certain kind of parameters uh, governing the, their policy on state aid. Secondly, that the British would have an independent competition authority. And so the terms of reference of that would be worked out. And that competition authority would be able to say, look, this is not allowed. This is outside the rules. And they would also be having some kind of uh, dialogue with the European Commission. And then thirdly, that there would be an arbitration mechanism, a dispute resolution mechanism. And then uh, they would also, what the Europeans want is that they should, you know, if they're not happy with something that the British are doing and it goes into arbitration, that instead of waiting for that to work itself out, they can retaliate on some other issue if they want to. And so that's part of the whole kind of governance arrangement. And so those are the two issues. And they are closer than they have been on both of those issues. But each of them has the possibility to break up the talks. Briefly, if you can, Dennis, is the, the difficulties that we've seen this week over COVID and the worsening situation that the Johnson government has to manage, is that making them more likely to seek a deal? I know there's an argument that has always been canvassed in Westminster that 
you know, that the damage of a no, the economic damage of a no deal Brexit could sort of be hidden in the, the cost of the pandemic. But it seems to me that it is more likely to make Johnson eager to have a deal uh than, than the other way around. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that idea which was around, uh, you know, some time ago that actually it would be somehow, you know, you wouldn't notice there was, there'd be so much disruption with uh, the coronavirus that this extra bit of disruption would just go unnoticed and it would all be fine. And also another argument indeed that it could even be a distraction from uh, the, the government's record on coronavirus. The problem is that as each week passes, things get worse, both in terms of the uh, epidemic itself and the uh, you know the difficulties that the government has in terms of its test and trace operation, and also just in terms of the economic damage that, um, you know, because like in Ireland, uh, restrictions in Britain, uh, you know, are getting tighter. There's this whole kind of three-tier system that they operate with, you know, regional lockdowns. But it's politically difficult, it's economically difficult. And so the idea that you add all of this, and there's also a problem in terms of the capacity of the state to do some of these stuff. Already, uh, you know, the British government has said that they're not going to, you know, if there is no deal, for example, that they're not going to start charging tariffs or anything like that, introducing any of that until next summer, because they just know it's not going to be possible. They're, you know, uh, like, even if they have a deal, they're expecting quite a lot of delays at the border as people get used to the new paperwork that they will need, even if there is a deal. So I think that, uh, in a way, the fact that the timetable has slipped will increase the pressure on Boris Johnson to uh, to actually do a deal. And so there's all those factors that I mentioned. So let's say we're talking about, you know, early, middle of November. What you would also have is the American election will have happened. And the likelihood now is that you've got President Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is an Atlanticist. He believes in the rules-based, in the restoration of the rules-based international order. And the idea that you've got Britain crashing out of these arrangements in a disorderly way with the threat of, tr- of breaking uh, the withdrawal agreement, a treaty it made uh, just a few months ago, still on the books. It's not the best start if you want to kind of curry favour with the new American president. And is this why we read reports just finally, Dennis, that, uh, that the, the Johnson government in London have given up on uh, on Trump and have resigned themselves to the inevitability, as, uh, as some would see it, of a Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, there are some ways in which a Trump victory would be more straightforward for them because, obviously, he's pro-Brexit. They know him. Uh, you know, They can find a spot in his worldview. But at the same time, he's so unpredictable, he's so erratic, that actually, in terms of the national interest of Britain, uh, I think they would probably conclude that a Biden presidency is a better idea. But it is complicated for them. Because although in terms of foreign policy, the British government has actually hewed much closer to the Europeans on things like the Iran nuclear deal, which is also something Biden favours, uh, nonetheless, they would feel that, uh, you know, uh, the, and also I think they think that they could be a better friend to Biden and America on China, because Biden, although he won't be as aggressive about China as as Trump has been, he nonetheless will be tougher than, say, Obama was. And the, the British have already moved into a fairly hawkish position there. But I do think that they, they fear that uh, a lot of the old Obama advisors who will be uh, in his, uh, his group, they still resent the way the vote leaves people treated Barack Obama's intervention in the 2016 referendum, where he said that Britain would go to the back of the queue when it came to uh, getting a trade deal with the US. And so I think they expect that they're going to have something of a challenge getting into his good books. 
Well, we'll wait and see with some relish what happens there. Uh, Dennis, Suzanne, uh, finally, you are, you were in this morning's paper anyway. You were in South Carolina. Where are you off to next? Um, yeah, just back from the Carolinas. Very interesting uh, races there, including a Senate race in South Carolina. Um, probably uh, going to be traveling maybe to Michigan and Pennsylvania this coming week for the final stretch. And just to kind of just come in, just to pick up on something Dennis said there, and I know, Pat, you were writing about this as well, but just the Biden, you know, this issue of Brexit and Biden's alliance, if you like, or sympathy with the Irish position. Um, you know, it is something that the British officials here in Washington are watching, they're concerned about. Um, and it was interesting, the Biden campaign put out a statement last weekend about a policy position essentially in Ireland and Irish America. It was all very positive. They did also include a line, which I think is important, that it sees Ireland as a possible ally on the Security Council. Ireland is assuming its two-year seat in January. So I think Ireland's entire two-year seat is going to be dictated, really, by what happens in November. I mean, if there's another Trump presidency, it's going to be a very different Security Council than if there's a Biden presidency. But I do think it's important to say that... Um, not, not every issue Ireland and America are aligned. You know, Middle East being one of them. Um, issues uh, about Huawei, China, like as, as Dennis mentioned there. So, you know, already I'm hearing that there, um, you know, Americans are making overtures, if you like, to the Irish, think they're going to have their buddy on the, on the Security Council. But there will be moments, I suppose, that Ireland will have to kind of distance itself. It might be quite, you know, me, you know ba- balancing Boston and Berlin, as it were, again, even though it's going to be there as a kind of conduit into the EU, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a delicate balancing act. Um, but yeah, that whole foreign policy implications of, of a Biden presidency for Brexit and how Europe, you know, moves forward and 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 moves together with America on, on threats like China is going to be a few key focus if, if, if Biden gets in in November. OK, well, thanks for joining us today, Suzanne. Uh, enjoy the last uh, uh, the last week and a half of the campaign and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks also to Dennis from Westminster and uh, we will talk to you again next week. So thanks for listening.